This is Dead Stick Radio, episode 12, recorded live on May 18th, 2020. Building the perfect panel. All right, and we are live here. So today we got uh, we got ourselves, uh, obviously, Scott as usual, and today we're joined by Tom Watkins. So, so Tom. Tom, Tom here. Um, we were talking about avionics a while ago, a little bit, about what the right thing to do was, go with the old versus new, that kind of thing. What's cheaper? What makes the most sense? And I saw a comment on a, a Facebook group from uh, Mr. Watkins here that referred to somebody's radios as used toilet paper. I thought, man, he'll be a perfect guest for this one. <laughs> so that might, that might be a good lead in here. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think it's a great lead in. Obviously we've all just done recently done a bunch of panel upgrades ourselves. So uh, yeah, let's talk about, talk about panels. Brian, do you have a Buccaneer shirt? I do. This is uh, I've got three of them. One of them didn't fit right, but uh, I ordered these things online. I got uh, one's um, one's a really nice one's got uh, the the whole blueprints of the whole Buccaneer on it. So uh, kind of uh, cool shirts. Tom, he he bought a Buccaneer what last fall, and he yeah, put, been, he replaced the whole right side of the panel with a new. What, what'd you put in it? So I had, uh, it was just a bunch engine of steam monitor. gauges. Yeah. Ridiculously old steam gauges. There was a, there was an old engine monitor, but it had fried and all it did was, you know, get, uh, get the, the temperatures it didn't get any kind of logging, none of the digital tack, none of the kind of cool stuff you'd expect on a, on a modern engine monitor. And, uh, I decided I wanted just, I wanted something better. I wanted a proper engine monitor. I want something that would alert me if I, you know, screwing up the engine in any way, shape or form. And I wanted something where I could really get it all the way back, you know, lean a peak way back and, and be able to monitor absolutely everything of that engine so we completely ripped out the right hand side of the panel actually we, we put an overlay over top of it and uh, put in an uh, jpi edm 900 and uh and that's pretty much been the entirety of my right hand panel the only thing that stayed over on the right hand side was my um was my hydraulic gauge it was pretty sweet tom, yeah. tom have you ever seen like breaker switches I have actually, and just uh, oddly enough, that you bring that up, um, Matt, who's uh, hopefully joining us shortly, he has a breaker switch installed in his long easy that controls the the electronic ignition. And I didn't know this, but apparently they're kind of cruddy. And his breaker switch broke after only a couple of hours of service. He bought it brand new from Aircraft Bruce, and it failed. So yes, I have seen them. Um, I haven't really thought much about them, but after seeing Matt's fail, I'm not really a fan. Because they're, they're, I think they're standard in Buccaneers, aren't they, Brian? Yeah, exactly. Every Buccaneer, obviously, the planes were built in nineteen, you know, seventies, early seventies. So all of them across the bottom of the panel, all your switches are just breakers. So you just pull out the breaker and push it back in. Now, in defense of that, that's actually how the space shuttle operated for its entire lifetime. They, to save weight, they didn't include a switch and a breaker. They just included nothing but straight breakers. So, so Brian, are your switches, or are they just the pullable breakers? Yeah, just pullable breakers. Just pull them in and out, and that's how you turn on lights and stuff. So, so there's actually a difference. So there's a switch. Um, they're, they're not real common. Oftentimes, they're used as a switch for an avionics bus or something, but it's a switch, and actually on the end of the, to or the, end of the toggle has the current rating done. So I think what you've got are just resettable breakers. I've got those in my Lancer, and they're great, but I don't know if I have one. I, I could show you guys one, but they're, uh, they're a little different. Well, yeah, Brian's are standard in his Buccaneer. It's like a breaker that is the switch. Yeah, so there's yeah, his master on off. He pulled the breaker. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Simple. Yep. Yeah. Works works fairly well for me, so I'm happy. I've with never it. seen it. So, what other mods are you going to do to the panel, Brian? Uh, so, well, the other mod I did to the panel is, uh, well, I, my, the clock was out on it. Uh, it was just an old uh, little battery powered clock, just a terrible piece of crap. So all I did is just replace that, uh, that whole clock assembly with a, a different one, with, which is a, a new clock assembly. It has two USB ports on it and mm -hmm. I plug in USB onto those and it works great. Oh, uh, mine was, <laughs> mine was, a, my old one was newer than that. So. <laughs> That was uh it might have been your clock. No, I got this actually. Matt uh was doing the panel in his long easy, so this came out of it. Actually, no, this might have come out of the castle. I can't remember. Uh, but it's kind of a that neat was thing. In his cat? That was in Atomic Pumpkin? Yeah, I think so. 
eight day wind up. Uh, it's actually a Swiss watch. Oh, very nice. It looks so, like the clocks they have in swimming pools. <laughs> yeah, where they got the four hands going, so you can always yeah. start within fifteen second intervals. Yeah. The uh, the other thing I did to the panel is on the is um, instead of replacing all the avionics and all the radios and everything, so I can get GPS, I just put a RAM mount on there, just a you know a standard you know, off the shelf RAM mount to attach my little iPad Mini, and it sits there right on the dash. I put in a second uh, USB charging port for it, so now that's that's my whole panel. It's just an iPad and an EDM nine hundred, and everything on the right hand side is is simple and and very efficient. You know, I think the, the iPad thing, Brian, is one of the smartest things that, that people can do. I, I hear oftentimes people are upgrading, um, you know, airplanes, I'll call it a VFR airplane, like your Buccaneer, with thirty to $40,000 worth of certified instruments. And, and why? Are you ever going to fly your Buccaneer on a, you know, weather day where you're having to fly an approach down to 300 feet? Probably not. Um, so for the money and the practicality, buying a, an iPad, it's just huge. The one thing, actually, it's sitting in my backpack right here. Um, I'm a huge opponent uh, of is this little doodad here. So I've actually got two. I've got uh, this doodad. I don't know if anybody knows what that is that's watching. Uh, Stratus, I have one in the other room, yeah. And I also have another one. I've got the Stratix. Let me go find my Stratix. It's right here, too. This is the Stratus 2S. That's, um, that's like an AHARS, isn't it? Like with Fourfly? There's a yeah, that's uh, it's yeah, it's a full AHARS for for flight. So I have I have a Stratus two just like Tom has, uh, which is the one I primarily use. Then I also have this little bad boy over here. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. This What's is a uh, this is called the Stratux, and this one is significantly cheaper than the Stratus. And uh, it's actually, it's a little mini computer. It's a, it's a, it's called a Raspberry Pi. And it just sits inside this case with a, with a couple software defined radios. And it works, uh, it works really, really well. And it also means I can write my own software for this thing. So some people use these. Uh, so if you've ever been on like flight radar, then they're watching ADSB signals. They're a lot of times they're actually using one of these things and they just connect in the, uh, it's actually inside it. There's a network port inside of there that you can plug into and they just connect that to the internet. And then suddenly they're able to watch any kind of ADSB traffic so these are really handy little devices they're really really cheap the big problem is these are uh they're fiddly to get going and fiddly to make work and they have no battery in them so you have to have an external battery but they do work really well so well, tom's is the same isn't it well yeah, the exactly. is internal battery but the one thing i like about it i don't know if you guys can see there yeah you know the horizon it it's flawless i mean it it just it just works you turn it on and it works is it certified no but I can tell you, I'd much rather be flying IMC with uh, modern, you know, electronics than some forty-five-year-old instrument that's just yeah, vacuum gate. Exactly, exactly. And I, what else? Even for this, for a Stratus two, that's an iPad four mini. Um, one thing to note too: if you're going to buy an iPad, make sure you buy one that has three G functionality because the the uh, Wi-Fi only iPads don't have a GPS built in, but um, buy three G one, buy Stratus, about two grand I think for the for the pair, and it is just phenomenal. You've got everything at your fingertips. You can save all of your uh, your data. So there's a function in four flights. Well, there's an additional expense in four flight, but let's say I'm going to do a trip from here to Toronto. I can do a pack, and all the charts, all the notams, all of the information that I need is is all uploaded onto my iPad, saved. All the maps are saved. I've got the entire North American VFR map system saved on my ipad i mean it's just crazy to think about how many paper maps you would need like you need a suitcase or a duffel bag full of paper maps it's just crazy yeah absolutely and I, the best thing I, the best thing i like about my stratus i was flying back from uh from ontario and there was uh, i was flying along and i had the stratus connected uh, just to see what other traffic was out there you know playing out the ahars part of it and suddenly a little little blip appears on on my foreflight and it's, it's right ahead of me and it's coming straight towards me but it's you know two thousand feet below me three thousand feet below me something like that and uh i'm like well what is this uh, so uh, you know i haven't heard any radio calls so i make a open radio call and nobody responds and i realized they're probably taking off from that airport over there so i 
just I quickly tap on the on the on the radio signal for on four flight just figure out what radio it is quickly swap over my radio signal and just key the mic and sure enough it's a medevac coming out of there and they're coming straight at me and uh, if I didn't have that ADSB they might not have seen me I might not have seen them I actually veered out of the way uh, maybe about a mile and I looked over and I saw and they would have and we were basically at the right same same altitude at the same place going exactly in opposite directions and uh, we would have had a, a conflict there pretty pretty easily so it just uh, to me having adsb is is amazing even though i don't have it out so it's a huge benefit to, to safety i mean to, to your your point there a couple of years ago uh mark another pilot friend of mine we were flying down to reno we were about uh 100 miles north of boise um 14 000 feet the the weather was i mean it was it was obscured visibility and smoke probably down to about two miles visibility um we probably should have just filed ifr but anyway uh, long story short, we saw opposite direction traffic coming towards us on the Stratus about two minutes before ATC called us up and said, hey, there's some traffic. He was 2,000 feet below us, but still, I mean, it's it's pretty cool to be able to see that sort of thing well in advance of even even an ATC heads up that, hey, there's some traffic there. Total total boost of safety. Absolutely. Yeah. We were starting to install those in, uh, in gliders back when I was flying gliders and, uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't ADSB transceivers. They were, uh, they're called power farms, which do kind of the same thing. They do receive ADSB and, uh, and they, they easily would have been saved, easily saving people's lives. Uh, there's been so many times where you've been out uh, flying around in a glider and it'll, you know, it'll peep and ping at you and say, there's someone over here. And you're like, I didn't see them. It's told me exactly where they are. And, uh, and the nice thing about power form for gliders is obviously gliders were, we get in close proximity a lot. So it's able to understand, uh, where the other, where the gliders are going. So it's not constantly freaking out at you and saying, you know, you're, you're getting close to them when you're both just thermaling. Yeah. So great, great piece of equipment. I love this stuff. Is the Stratus ADSB out or just in? Or just, in. just in. Yeah. Just, just in. Yeah. So, um, speaking of upgrades, I think I should talk a little bit. So, uh, Avionics was, was, uh, pleasant enough to, to help us out with some of their new technology. So they have a new transponder called a tail beacon X. Um, it's an ADSB out, uh, the, I forget what the version for Canada is, but it's the, the satellite based versions or ADSB out and a mode S transponder. Is it diversity? Is it called with the two antennas? Yeah. So I, Maybe that's what it's called. I, I can't remember, but uh, yeah, they connect with the uh, the Iridium um, the Iridium satellites. Uh, I can't remember the actual name of the Iridium. They're like a ACOM or something. So anyway, Uvionics has uh, been trying to get this certified, so they've asked for some people to, to help them out with some of their testing. I've got one. I've tried it a few times, but it's incredible how small it is. So essentially, it it fits in your um, in your tail light similar to the, the tail beacon that they're already selling as an ADS-B out option in the US, but this is an entire standalone transponder. So the tail beacon and the wing beacon that they're selling in the US, you still need your regular boat C or mode S transponder on board the airplane. And what the, the tail beacon or the wing beacon does is it sniffs your, you know, it sees the output of your transponder on 1080 megahertz and then couples your output with your altitude to the GPS signal and ADS-B transmits it out. Um, you still need your old transponder. The system that they've given us, it's a complete standalone unit. It probably weighs less than a pound, I think, the entire thing. Simple installation, three wires, but it's crazy. Um, so far, I've done about six flights with it, I think, or maybe, I guess after yesterday, probably two more flights, eight flights. It's working good. It's just crazy to see the new technology. It's it's a step ahead. You know, There's none of this old crap that uh, it's got a wire harness of 18 wires that are uh, an inch thick modern stuff all digital just excellent i am so excited about that uh that tail beacon x that uavionics is doing some amazing things and those things are are incredibly cheap compared to the stuff from garmin like for awesome. for for a garmin unit to, to do adsb out a diversity out <laughs> you're looking seven eight thousand dollars us uh whereas a what a tail beacon <laughs> x a, a uavionics tail beacon x they said is something like 2500 so way 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 cheaper I think it's a little more than that. I saw it on Spruce. So this is the first one they sent us. They sent us an updated one. So that's the, this is the entire transponder. This is it. That's the control head. That's wow. the, that's it. Nothing else. And does that do uh, your mode, your mode C and your mode S or just mode S? Um, I think it's just a mode S output, but essentially it's your standalone transponder. You don't need anything else. Um, you program it all through Wi-Fi. You, know, you just, you turn it on and you, you log on with your phone or 
there's an app actually they use to, to set up your, your, uh, your aircraft parameters in it. Um, it works great. I mean, they've had a, you know, a bit of development, um, issues, but that's, you know, you know, the standard development practice are trying to get it to market quickly and what they've got now works great. I mean, it's, it's light, it's cheap, even, even at 5,600 bucks, I think is what they're, they're, uh, retailing for on Spruce now. It's still cheap. I mean, 10 years ago to buy a new Garmin transponder was like five grand, just the, the trade, you know, and again, to wire it, it's a huge undertaking. You've got coax, you've got all this crap. This has got none of that. Plug it in the tail. That's it. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I, when did, they're only available for experimental though, right now, aren't they? Or can you get them for, yeah. for certified? So right now they're still just for experimental aircraft. They're trying to get them certified and, and what they do actually, you want to grab that thing? Yeah. But th- uh, those diversities aren't even available yet. I don't think to buy. Aren't well, they just like beta testing? They're, yeah, we're in the beta testing. I haven't talked to Trent in a while, but they give us this little doodad too. So this is a Sentry that's been repurposed um, to be a data logger. So what's happening now, when I go fly, the satellites are recording the transponder, and this is also recording the ADSB output live. And to help with the certification, from what I understand, they're taking the recorded data from here and comparing it to the satellite data to make sure they match. And if they match, I guess they need like, I don't know, some number of hours of flight testing or miles or something to uh, to say they're good and then the certification will go up forward. But I think they're trying to get it certified this year. So that'll be the one that'll be be on the, on the radar to a lot of people, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Super I'm, simple install, right? Absolutely, yeah. I was uh, I was looking at uh, doing some further upgrades to the panel, particularly because I want to go to the wanted to go to the states this year. Obviously, pandemic has kind of squashed that. But I was looking at going to the states and to really fly around properly in the states. You need ADSB, and I, I'm not going to waste money on a regular ADSB unit when we're going to have to have diversity here, at least in the higher altitudes in in Canada here, uh, very shortly. So I'm waiting for the, that tail beacon uh, to come available for my plane and. Then I'm gonna I'll be the first in line to buy one. Tom, do you I have mean, to run wiring, like data wiring back there? There's uh, one serial pair, so two circuits and yeah. power. So the if you were gonna install it, like let's say Brian's gonna put it in the in the Buccaneer, I don't know where your tail light is. If it's up on the top of the rudder, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, you use the power wire for the light to power it, and then you need to run a shielded twisted pair to to feed data. For data. It. Yeah, it's it's not a big deal though. Compared to what a regular transponder install is, I mean, I'd much rather one run a 24 gauge twisted pair than, you know, 30 feet of RG400 or, you know, if you're using RG58 still, plus all the encoder wiring, all the encoders still parallel gray code. Um, yeah, all that comes out, the antenna comes out, the big box. I've left mine in my Lancer. I haven't completely, you know, tore up the old stuff. I just want to make sure all this is good and, and working before I do that. But once that, that happens then that stuff's coming out because it's just dead weight you're hauling around yeah does it uh does it make sense running old radios like that because they come for sale quite often <laughs> i mean the comment that you meant, mentioned earlier about my post on facebook saying you know those radios are like buying used toilet paper it, it's 100 percent true so could you imagine going to a garage sale and buying uh, a cordless telephone from 1985 you know, with the old antenna that was telescopic, that's essentially what you're buying. It's old crap. I mean, back in 1980, or you know, a lot of the radios were developed in the, the 70s. Yeah, they were cool at the time, but these aren't the 1970s anymore. And the amount of money and effort you're going to spend on an install of something like that versus what a new radio costs. I think a new ICOM A200 is about 1200 bucks or 1400 bucks. It's going to work and it's not going to come out of tune. It's not going to need adjustments. It's not going to need maintenance. It's going to work when it's hot. It's going to work when it's cold. It's not going to use 80 amps because something fried in it and caught on fire. Those exact radios, um, a buddy of ours, Chris Weaver, he had a report of one caught on fire and got thrown out the window. I mean, these are the things that happen. They're just, they're, they're older technology, right? They're 1970s electronics. You look inside, even some of the later King transponders, the Penix King KT76A transponders, the later model ones, the circuit board looks empty because they've, you know, taken all this old school technology and replaced it all with a couple of microcontrollers. It's it's just crazy to see the development changes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Before you used to have big discrete components, transistors, you'd have uh, vacuum tubes if you go real far back. And now it's all just replaced these little little micro uh, microchips that uh, software defined radios and some of the later stuff like that's literally that's running this thing is a software defined radio. Uh, it just these things work so much easier and so much cheaper and they're way more reliable. That's the entire control head. Oh, hey, Matt. Sorry, hey. sorry, sorry, I just button in, guys. I'm uh, I'm still out at the airport. Uh, Blair's going for uh, a ride in a fast plane, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I had an opportunity to go up in the AN too, so I uh, decided to jump in and go for a fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you ditched us. Yeah, I had a good reason. Yeah. What What's Blair in? Is that a legacy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that innovative wings airplane? Yeah. Oh yeah. We're we're talking avionics right now. Okay. I'll listen in and catch up. <laughs> I'll see if I can get your video down. stream here running, but uh yeah. I guess the topic of the uh, the avionics came from my my post on Facebook that basically said installing, you know, thirty year old Collins radios is like buying used toilet paper. Um why don't you talk about what you've done to the long easy in terms of avionics and wiring? Oh yeah. Um, I got a plane that we built in the, uh, I guess early eighties and, um, I, it had steam gauges and, uh, all kinds of gauges tucked away in the armpits and everywhere. So, um, for just better cockpit management, I, uh, have just recently swapped it over to a kind of a, bit of a glass cockpit and a carbon fiber panel so but uh, you have all of your main instruments straight up front um everything all the information you need to know uh easy access and all displayed at the same time um which to me was a big thing for a plane that uh is experimental and i was initially test flying i wanted to data log the engine information and and just uh you know have as much information as i can right in front Right. So the theme there is go modern. Yeah. And it's experimental. So there is like, um, it's cheaper and easier to, to put in or upgrade your, uh, avionics with that than with a, a certified plane, because what I did would have probably cost me $20,000 in a certified plane. So, you know, I may have spent $5,000. So there's, a there is a kind of a, I guess, uh, a benefit to the experimental world if you're handy enough to do the work. Yeah, I had a yeah, quote I put to a, do one of those GTR. What's that, Brian? Oh, I had a quote to do, uh, to do the panel in mine. It was, it was going to be a relatively simple panel. It wasn't this, you know, massive integrated Garmin thing. And the, the, the quote come, came back at 30 grand. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing that. What are you guys on? crack like my ipad does 90 percent of what i want that other thing to do but my ipad cost me like 800 bucks including the mount like okay cool what what was in that yeah. quote though brian because it wasn't a lot of that labor too uh no only five thousand that was labor almost all the rest of it was uh so like 25 grand worth of it was just uh just the electronics so i had uh because i don't have an intercom in my plane so i've got this little intercom box get rid of that i was doing a garmin uh nav navcom just a standard navcom radio i was doing a gtn there's like a 355 or something which is just the the navigator uh just the gps navigator and then i was doing a couple of uh was the dude 275 so that's is most of the 275 that ended up causing the uh, the big uh, the big advanced cost there, and I'm just like I, I don't need all that stuff. So I'm looking back and figuring out what I need because I want to I do want to make my plane so it's ready for IFR. So if I do take it around the world, which I'm planning on doing, then if I get into trouble, I have all the equipment I need. But uh, generally speaking, I am perfectly happy with it just being a, a VFR airplane. Yeah, I put one of those GTR 200Bs in the kit box. It's experimental only. It's uh, my most favorite piece of avionics, and it's like what twelve hundred bucks. Yep. It's got like music, auto tune, no more tune at all, or no more uh, squelch at all. Uh, it uh, it ties into my Era GPS, so I just tune whatever airport I'm going to and press the frequency, and it populates it into my standby on the radio. It's pretty awesome. Oh really? Oh man, it's amazing. And the quality is uh, so good. The AN2 has a full uh, Garmin suite. 
in it. So there's the obviously some of the the old engine gauges, um, but then there's new uh, glass cockpit of Garmin on both sides. So it's it's pretty interesting because the the Russian gauges are pretty hard to read. Like what exactly you're um, it's indicating. You you can tell by the range of numbers probably what it's for, but you know some of the other stuff is is you know you know you have a needle pointing at something in Russian writing and it's not quite sure. Duh. Wait, you Duh. can't just replace. <laughs> you can't just replace those with new. Like, is this some weird plug? Uh, it's all metric for one thing. Um, oh. Yeah, and it's uh, so like when we were flying tonight, it was in kilometers per hour. They had, he has the um, the Garmin in kilometers per hour, <laughs> which is oh, because the manual's like that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Man, that thing's got oodles of panel space, I bet, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's got a lot of the original gauges plus the Garmin, and there's still room. What's, uh, what did you do to the pumpkin again? Um, just just put a, I just put a f- carbon fiber panel in it. That's all. I just um, redid all the wiring and then a panel, but nothing, uh, nothing really updated. There's not really any gauges to, to do in that. Didn't, didn't you say you found like automotive wiring in that thing? Like solid yeah. core copper? Yeah. Yeah. Like household wiring. The coolest find of any wire that we found lately was the uh, push to talk switch in the long easy. Yeah. It what was, was it? A, the, a phone cord. <laughs> like, you know, like an old rotary phone that you like, you know how it has like the coiled cord. It was oh. like that. And I know it was from a rotary phone because the plane was built in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> okay so for non-technical people listening the re- so solid core copper which is what you'd power your lights in your house with is a big no-no in airplanes because it's very prone to failure is that right vibration it, it doesn't have to yeah. deal with vibration in a house so all the stuff that we use in automotive and air, air aviation is all like a fine strand wire so right. it's got lots of flexures, so it doesn't. Uh, so if it cracks, um, you don't go crack. open. Yeah, yeah, we, have, exactly. we have the same. And, we do the same thing in networking as well. In walls where things aren't ever going to move, you put in the solid core because it's cheaper and it's, it's got a lot of other benefits. But then anywhere where you're moving the cables around, you put in that stranded core, so it doesn't. It's not fatiguing. Yeah. Well, and that aircraft spec wire, that white stuff, also has that really nice um, outside uh, layer on it. Yeah. It, it's like abrasion proof. <clears throat> yeah, it's rated for probably higher temperatures and abrasion proof. So that's what it is now. Most of the wiring in the longies now, I would say like 95% is all Tefcel from aircraft spruce. Yeah. You've got some capped on in there still, but I mean, for the most part, I think it's fine. Yeah. What's all right? On? Yeah, some capped on wire in, inside the airplane still. What is that? I said climbing out. Oh, I don't know if you can see them. I don't know where they are on my screen, but they're like at a thousand feet already, not even at the end of the runway. Jeez. My Kid Fox can do that. <laughs> yeah. I think the legacy has like, twice the time. I think the legacy has a little bit more power. It's a 350 horse twin turbo like one. I can still climb that steep. I've done it before. Just at 50 knots. <laughs> the AN2 actually I was really surprised like um, two runway lights and you're off the ground and the thing is just climbing um, the controls are extremely heavy oh, but, I can imagine. Uh, yeah that may that's what I expected were, like, were you, you sitting in the cockpit it, what's that were you in the cockpit yeah. yeah when you go to roll it like in a turn you have to it's like steering a a big boat with no assisted steering. So you slowly start the roll and just kind of keep holding pressure and letting it roll, but you can't actually like rotate the yoke, like hard, right. And it, <laughs> That's crazy. You need both, both hands to turn it. They're, they're single engine too, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Is it some radio, some Russian radial up front? EZL, yeah. I think it's, uh, it's a nine cylinder. It's uh thousand horse radial 
Is it hard to find wow. parts? Uh, no, I don't think so. Cause a lot of the same engine on the drometers. Oh, I believe. Yeah. Oh man. That'd be fun. I got to come down there still. Yeah. I've never flown into Springbank yet. Oh really? <laughs> never. Well, you don't have any planes of transponders, do you? Uh, yeah, I got one. It's oh, white. Yeah. <laughs> bring, bring the kid Fox down. <laughs> the long flight. Yeah. Uh, I will see. I might. How fast is the Kit Fox cruise at? 100 miles an hour? Yeah, it'd be an hour and hour and a half, hour and three yeah. hours. It wouldn't be too bad. I've been to Sundry a couple times. That's not, that's not a hard flight at all. Probably the whole thing at like 500 feet. That's like three quarters of the way there. Oh, I know. Like you can pretty much see Calgary from there. So did you get the Kit Fox all up and uh, ready to go this weekend? You guys, oh, guys yeah. Fly? Oh, yeah. So, so what I did is... Uh, it had this, um, this leaf spring tailwheel spring on it, which is like old school. It's really heavy. It's like automotive technology. And that, that's how they all came back in like the nineties. So, um, it also came with a, a bracket. So they basically welded a little plate, uh, on the back, right underneath the tail post, uh, it's like an eight thick chromoly. Um, uh, but there's no gusset or anything. So after like, like 1500 hours, these, these plates can crack and your tailwheel can come off. So we, we welded a, a thickener on a doubler onto this plate, uh, three sixteenths, I think we put on and then replaced it with that T three from Alaska Bushwheels. Yeah. And man, I picked that tailwheel up and I dropped it and it looked fake. Like it didn't bounce at all. It just stopped. Yeah. Like so putting now the full the gear on. Oh, it's going to like, I can see how it'll make you so lazy. Have you, uh, like, have you been able to balance it on yet? No, I haven't flown it yet with the tailwheel. I just oh. taxied it. I haven't had time. It might tomorrow if the weather's nice, yeah. but it, uh, it's pretty crazy. But it really changed the deck angle, too. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess down a little bit. Lifts it up. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's high now. It looks, it looks nice. It's yeah. a nice unit, but they're, they're not hard to design or build. Like, if, if you wanted to build your own, it'd be super easy. Yeah. yeah I might bring it in. Problem is, Ryan, I'll be the slowest you? guy. You, uh, you had That's the uh, Buccaneer out. Yeah, I was. Uh, I took the Buccaneer out. Scott got a bunch of uh, video. I was doing some splashing goes and annoying his neighbors while he was putting the dock in early this weekend. And uh, yeah, finally back on the water. It's uh, it's actually only my what in that plane. It's my my second second solo uh, water landing right out in front of Scott's place there. But never did any <laughs> any solos after I got got licensed. And uh, yeah, it, it it was totally it was nice glassy water, so it was nice and easy on. And I completely screwed up all my takeoffs, but uh, I think I got those sorted out. Emailed my instructor some of the video from the wing, and and he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, uh, you, you got to be more aggressive. You got to pull harder back taking off, and then push it over forward." Okay, I got gotcha. you. So to get on the yeah. step. Yep. So, float plane. Man, cool. that thing is so loud. Yeah, like it absolutely I, housed. The entire beach was out filming it. There's fishermen yeah. like all over, and they're all filming this thing. Yeah, when it's Probably dialed up at 2700 RPM, that the thing is pretty loud, and it, it sounds different than the other bucks too because it's got the turbocharger. So, you know, so what you guys Brian, do? What's, what's the rules or regulations for landing on a lake? Like, because you can, is any water game for you or? Most water is uh, uh, certain water like uh, national parks. You can't do it. Uh, there's a there's so we're all familiar with the Canadian flight supplement. There's also another one called the Canadian water supplement. And you just kind of read through that one yep. and it'll tell you certain places where you're not allowed to fly into. Now, the reality of that, though, is that uh, a lot of those places that have uh, registered water aerodromes, they're not really registered water aerodromes. Uh, for example, out in Lake Muskoka, there's, I think it's Lake Muskoka, there's, uh, there's like six water aerodromes registered and they're all PPR, but nobody listens to that. They're, they're trying to do that to try and stop the planes from flying. Like this is our registered aerodrome on this little piece of water. You can't land here unless you yeah. register and call, call ahead. And everyone's just like, suck it. We don't care. And so everyone <laughs> just kind of comes in and lands there, you know, and it's, uh, so pretty much anywhere you want. So Obviously like there's, uh. Um, that uh, Scotts Lake there, like Pigeon Lake or whatever, as long as you can land and take off or whatever, it's game. You can go, but there's right away to fishermen, obviously, and or like yeah, I think boat rules apply, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Boat rules apply. It's pretty much all the same. You don't need a pleasure craft operator license for it, but uh, I have one anyways. I've had one for, for a while. So uh, well, pretty much, yeah. It's, that would, <laughs> if if uh, the CEOs rolled up beside you <laughs> as you're trolling around and asking for your pleasure craft <laughs> license. <laughs> no, there's, a, a, I there's this point uh, called Fallis Point that everybody parks their boats off of. There's a sandbar that goes way out to almost the middle of the lake. And everyone just goes out there and drinks and turns the music up. It's like three feet deep, way, way far out. Yeah. So we should uh, bring Brian's plane up. You guys should fly up with the easy pumpkin and the Lancer and then uh, drive out to the cabin when Brian will fly in and we'll go have some fun. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's the minimum depth of water you can land in? Mm. That's a great question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. The reality is it's it's not much. It's like two or three feet. It'll it'll handle it. So it's uh, it's, yeah. it's like a small boat. It like the 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 distance from pretty much the edge of the door to the bottom of the hull is like maybe what, 18 inches, maybe two feet. Like it's yep. it's really shallow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the big, the big worry you have to, uh, is, is that it, it, the tail does dig in pretty deeply when you're, when you're slowing down and speeding up and, and first accelerating. So that's an extra, you know, foot or two that the tail dips down in the back while it's, while it's getting onto the step. Yep. Man, that day after you made all that noise, a Navajo buzzed me too, like, like an hour later. <laughs> yep, and there was a, there was another float plane out there at the same time as well at same altitude and of course most float planes nobody talks on the radio ever they're just like yeah no i'm i'm here get out of my way ah uh, float plane pilots <laughs> i'm one of them now it's pretty so, it pretty cool to watch technically then you can just go do float plane landings and stuff like uh, nordo because it's not a registered aerodrome there's no control zone yeah yeah, I think there's uh, like three registered aerodromes in Canada uh, or not. Re yeah, register. So like certified aerodromes in Canada for float planes. Uh, one's in I think Billy Bishop is one. I think the uh, downtown um, uh, Vancouver is another one. And oh, yeah. I can't remember where the other ones are, but they're very, very few and far between where they're actually certified aerodromes. They're all registered in the water supplicant. But of course, nobody really. I'll be honest. Most of most of float plane pots I've talked to, they're like, "Oh yeah, I, I've I've heard of that thing." I it's about a but as far they've gotten. So uh, it's on four yeah. flights. So I just press the button; it's there. But I kind of think Sue Lookout in Ontario might be on that list, but I can't remember. Yeah, that might be one. Man, that'd be epic flying a float plane out there. That in the Bahamas, I think. Yes, the Bahamas. Yeah. Problem is, the canoe gets so rusty. Yeah. Well, you have to, yeah, you have to be super careful. Yeah. You have to be careful. So you have to wash the plane off. So what a lot of people do is they'll have uh, they'll hose the plane down, but then they'll also get an attachment where they can hook up a hose and just attach it to the uh, to the bilge plugs. So they'll pop a bilge plug out, drain all the water because there's always water in a float plane, and you just you screw it in there and then just blast a bunch of water in there and then you know slosh it around a bit and then let it drain and do that a couple times and you should get all the salt out. So it is super important to get all the salt off of there or the thing will corrode. Uh, every every plane out there, every float plane out there said uh, oh yeah it's never seen salt water it probably has they've just been cleaning it so that is the plan for this antonov that i was in um it's going on anfibs late this year um and the interior is being turned into a um camper oh, like an rv nice. so it's like a tiny home um and uh the the owner is going to tour around um tropical islands so this last winter he was down there with his other plane in the bahamas just touring around so um this one they can actually live in and just live on the coast of wherever so you know go all the way around south america so anywhere you can find a lot of fuel i guess the, the thing <laughs> idling on the ramp at like whatever i don't know how many 100 rpm it would have been a couple hundred rpm and it was 10 gallons an hour <laughs> at idle so, man that's crazy so what 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 kind of plane was this antonov antonov an two, an two, okay. world's largest biplane. 
It's the most thing ever. You know what you should try and do is um, after after we're done here and you're editing, edit in a picture for everybody that's watching. I'm so gonna, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to do, yeah. Actually, I'm going to walk over. There's two of them here now, actually. I'll walk over to one and I'll just uh, stand in there front of go. it and you guys can get the uh, spectrum. But uh, I think the bot it's a four blade prop, but the bottom blade is probably starts at my head. Phew. So it, it would be like several feet off the ground. That's a big plan. I think they're cheap too. Yeah, they are. Uh, 30,000 US can get you a flying one. 30,000? Yeah, less than a kit fox. What? And you can take all your friends, 4,000 pounds. Payload. I think is they, they burn a little bit more fuel than the Kit Fox and or oil yeah, too. Yeah, the got to chip in. <laughs> are they, are are they wood wings? Money. What is it? Wood wings, steel tube fuselage? Uh, it's uh, aluminum fuselage and fabric covered uh, tail and wings. Wood and wings? It's pretty cool. <clears throat> it has a um, Not it has leading edge uh, slats. Uh, all right. Well, it's right behind me, so you guys see the tail right there. So I'm gonna jump over the fence. No, that's not gonna work. One second. Tom, is it easy to fly in a spring bank? See, you can see it like Oh yeah. But I can go around and get get up uh close to it. I, I want to come see that place. I've uh, I've heard a lot of stories of how difficult it is to get into, but then I flew into it last fall, just after I brought my plane back, and uh, I had no problem at all. They were they were pretty nice and pretty pretty relaxed getting in there. For the most part, the controllers are pretty pretty cordial. There's a couple of times that uh, they get cranky, but usually that's just from all the students, you know, kind of screwing up and making mistakes. But you know, call ahead. Um, You'll be talking to Calgary anyway, probably. Call Calgary first, and then they'll hand you off to Spring Lake, and it's pretty straightforward. All right. Okay, that's the oil cooler right there. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So I guess the the bottom uh, the bottom blade is at my shoulder. But, but uh, you might get one for thirty thousand. But like, what's that prop cost to overhaul? Yeah, that's the thing. So you guys can, you guys can, can you see that? Yeah. They're probably like four grand a cylinder too. Well, there's only nine. So that's <laughs> a little more than what, what yeah, you pay true. for. So the uh, cool thing about them is you can't see on this one, but um, the leading edges have uh, slats, which are pressure activated and only for a certain pressure range. So when you're taxiing, they're actually extending out. And they're right. ran by a blast tube. This one actually doesn't have them. The other one does. But uh, they have a blast tube on the leading edge. And when you have a certain amount of air pressure in that tube, the slats will deploy. So when you're taxiing, they're both coming out at like different times and kind of like going out and in, out and in. But when you're cruising, they're both in. But if you slow down and pull the plane, you pull the power off and pull the stick all the way back, the plane will just slowly float down to the ground. So there's no published stall speed for it. So the emergency procedure in like a IFR situation or some situation where you can't see the ground or where you're just going down to the ground without engine power is just pull back. <clears throat> is it because the tail is too small? Like you can't get enough elevator to stall? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Russian bear. I love it. We got our foot footholds uh, to climb up onto the tail. Yeah. But this little aluminum, it's got the big door right here. So it's yeah. got a little door and a big door. So you can uh, put in all your big cargo. The guy that owns these, he will load up his uh, dirt bikes and then go up to the, like, Red Deer Forestry Strip and then go dirt biking out there or somewhere else. But yeah, I like, I mean, you look at that plane and you look at like a walking like. Is that the drain plug um, cover on the bottom there? 
Yeah, so right, right in here, um, this this cover up here is actually where you drain all the cylinders. This is your uh, uh, probably your oil cooler. Yeah, he's got a he's got a cover that's open underneath there. It looked like. Yeah, that's just an oil tank in there with the drain on it. Right. This one is actually quite a bit different than the other one that he was flying because it's it's a flying plane so it's set up this one they flew in it came from um Iqualit down to wisconsin then he flew it from wisconsin to across to um Victoria, something like that to the yeah. east coast or west coast and then uh just brought it here like a month ago so but it's it's got 3500 hours the other one that we were in has 300 hours since noon that's crazy did did you did i did you say you flew the pumpkin today i did yep all right man mine's still in pieces yeah i had a angry wife who wanted the plane together so she could go flying so <laughs> i got it together good motivation tom tom do you miss flying f1s <laughs> yes and no i miss the flying part of it i don't miss the uh <laughs> the other aspects the maintenance and the the money and the uh... politics and lack of leadership and you know just uh, bureaucracy yeah Matt you guys should fly that thing up here I'll put mine yeah, back we together once I get the longies going we'll do a formation flight up there how far away are you now? Um, so I got all my electrical done. Uh, I ended up putting a uh, electric speed brake actuator on it. Yeah. And then painting the front half of the cockpit, which was not in the original plan. So that added a week. Um, I have to put the canard on and uh, the bottom cowling on and... Um, recalibrate my uh magnetic compass and that's about it so pretty close pretty close yeah i load tested everything so yeah i was telling uh telling brian about the the switch failure you had your circuit breaker switch yeah i had a is it i want to say Tyco. is that right yeah i think so um circuit breaker switch toggle switch um and when I, I bought it from aircraft spruce and then i was reading the reviews some people you know it's like a 50 50 opinion of them being good and then being bad um and it's got a quite a long lever on it and it is really hard to switch like it's not a smooth toggle it's almost like it binds a bit but um and so it's running my electronic ignition but uh it actually the the little toggle lever actually broke right off the base and it's very small, like less than, I would say it's less than a hundred thou diameter and like white metal. So just from the impact of the switch opening and closing a few times, it just cracked and broke right off. Um, the thing is brand new. It has like maybe I would say 10 cycles on it. That's crazy. So I would go with a push-pull one if I were to do it again. I ran my electronic ignition through a, a push-pull breaker, then to a toggle switch. Um, and a toggle switch that I have is, is um, I guess, would be, I consider a higher grade. So, yeah. Yeah, mine's the same, I think. I, I think I've got a breaker, like, off the battery, which is the way Klaus from, from uh, Lightspeed says to do it, and then yep. switch. But you can also yep. run the switch through the the mag, the mag key, right? Or the key switch. Yeah, so it's direct from the battery to the breaker, from the breaker to the toggle, and then from the toggle to the actual light speed module. <laughs> the reason why I did the toggle um, is so that my switches for my left mag and my electronic ignition are side by side in their own little panel um, just to have everything in one place instead of having a switch um over here and then a circuit breaker that you switch 
over there kind of thing. So, right. And they're right on the left-hand side with your throttle and engine controls. So it's uh, kind of a natural hand position if you need to make a quick decision. I like that idea. Yeah. I've got the, uh, the key switch control on my plane, on my Lancer, but I also pull the circuit breaker when I don't fly just, you know, to make sure there's no, no drain on the battery or anything live or any potential for, for live, uh, live ignition. Yeah. That's a good point. The electronic ignition, because I have it directly connected to the battery. If I forget to turn that toggle switch off, I will drain my battery because my ignition is just sitting there on the way. Yeah. Right. So, and that actually has happened to a few of the Formula One racers at Reno. Were they, where they left their electronic ignition on and could not start the plane. Yeah. There's actually been a case where someone left their electronic ignition on and the engine started in the hangar. <laughs> when, when was this? Was this recent? Um, I wouldn't say recent, probably 2000, gosh, 2012, maybe. Man, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in that hangar, man. <laughs> that's carnage. So yeah. let's talk about that for a quick second in case uh, anybody doesn't know what we're talking about. So uh, the old school way of, of uh, powering or of creating ignition sparks for internal combustion engines and airplanes is with magnetos, which is uh, old school tractor technology, which is basically the magneto is just a, a gear uh, driven device that creates a spark, which then sends the spark up uh, wires to the spark plug. And it always fires at the same time. The modern way of doing it, which is how all cars do it now, is with electronic ignition, which senses the timing of the motor and can control the ignition timing in degrees before top dead center to give you more power and adjust the motor for optimum performance. And so you get better fuel economy, more power, and it runs smoother. And, it, and, and mine, at least, seems to overpower the magneto side of it. So, yeah. uh, airplanes, uh, have now, or a lot of them have converted and probably a lot more experimentals have taken out one magneto, replaced it with a timing device and installed a automotive style electronic ignition unit, which is basically yeah. a box, uh, a control box wired to the timing device, uh, and powered obviously. And, uh, yes. which then creates the spark yes. instead. The benefit of the Magneto is it's a standalone system. So if your um, electrical system fails on the airplane, you still have ignition for the engine. So it's completely separate from your electrical system. But once you put electronic on there, it's tied to your electrical system. But there is ways to isolate it and have redundancy in terms of a backup battery system. So for people building airplanes, for example, what is the... What is the uh, best way to do an ignition system? Is it with this electronic or not? Is it recommended? What are the downfalls? Tom, you want to take that one? My, my big advice is, you know, go one electronic and keep one magneto because, you know, there's pros and cons to both. But if you've got a magneto, and, and I'm not talking, then we'll divert back to my uh, comment about toilet paper, buying toilet paper. Just because you have a magneto doesn't mean it's good. Make sure it's serviced, make sure it's inspected, make sure it's functional. Um, have a good magneto and a good electronic and the, the likelihood that they're both going to fail on the same flight is, you know, essentially zero. I mean, it, there's still some likelihood there, but it is so low. You won't have any problems. There's a lot of people doing little electronics. Um, I'm sure you could design a system where you've got dual batteries, dual redundancy, all that stuff. But I think from my point of view, the, the performance benefit you're going to gain, um, by doing so isn't worth all of the extra hassle. Um, not to mention if you're flying somewhere and let's say one of your electronics breaks, it's a lot harder to get someone to fix it than you're flying somewhere and your magneto goes south. So it's just, yeah. to me, it's a no brainer. One mag, one electronic, best of both worlds. I've had that for a long time and not had any issues at all. So what yeah. do you get about 80% of the performance gain uh, replacing <laughs> one magneto with electronic ignition? What's the rule there? I think it depends on how you fly, right? If you're down at sea level and you're only flying a thousand feet, there, there's really going to be no benefit to the, to the magneto or to the electronic ignition over the magneto. Um, if you get up high 12, 13, 14,000, I think the, the benefit of one electronic, um, versus two electronics is probably 
90%, I think. I, I don't know. I mean, I've never done it, but I know what the difference yeah, is. The, the, magn- I, I, or the electronic ignition can compensate for altitude. So um, it is measuring your uh, manifold pressure and will advance based off of that as well. <clears throat> if you have a turbocharged plane, obviously should have similar manifold pressure all the way up, but for naturally aspirated, like my O235, you know, I'm losing manifold pressure. So the um, electronic ignition can compensate for that as well. So example, I can be at 14,000 feet, lead a peak. And if I shut the electronic ignition off, the engine almost quits. The magneto just can't fire it to, to keep it running. Um, because so it's firing at like 30 degrees still instead of that advanced position. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, I think in my plane, it's at 20 degrees in the, the 360. Yeah. Right. Our doesn't have the ability to so, so they say um, the electronic ignition system will fire. Oh, that's cool. Will fire on a, on a what, do, what do they call it? A, a, a map, I think they say. An ignition map, which is basically at full power, which is like 28 inches manifold pressure or whatever. Um, you'll get, you'll fire at 30 degrees or whatever the magneto's firing at, right? And then the higher you go, the more advanced the timing will become with the electronic ignition, which can't happen at high power settings because it would cause detonation. Yeah. So at high power settings, I mean, on takeoff, there's really no difference in RPM drop between my magneto and the electronic. But as you start to climb, and I, I forget what the number is, I think it's a 25 inches, the electronic begins to advance. And there's some number, I forget what the number is, but I think it's for every inch of manifold pressure, it's two degrees or something like this. I, I can't remember, but um, once you're at like 15,000 feet, you're at, at full advance. I, again, it's, it's just like we are talking about in our panels. We're taking 1930s tractor technology, literally, and replacing it with, you know, I hate to say it, 1980s technology you know, that you would, uh, you would install in a Volkswagen or something like this. Like I've got a Volkswagen van, Volkswagen bus 1986, and the ignition system on it is still essentially more advanced than what's in my electronic in my airplane today. Yeah. It's something that's all, it. something that bothers me a lot is how outdated these aircraft engines are. And people say, Oh, well it's so they're more reliable. Well, when was the last time your modern car actually failed on the side of the road? It's they do hundreds of thousands of miles without any kind of oh. failure. A prime example of that is when was the last time you bought a lawnmower that had points in it? Because every airplane that's got magnetos has a set of breaker points and they are, they're terrible. They, they, especially the slick ones, they constantly need maintenance. They constantly need adjustment. They're, they're just, they're, they're just terrible. They're the original case magnetos that were on, uh, you know, continentals, little continentals, which became slick were the same magnetos that were on tractors. They were case tractor mix. Tom, what are points? Points are two little, uh, switches so essentially there's a little cam inside the magneto that has these two little contacts that open and close and every time the points open that's when the the magneto will fire um but they wear out they're they're mechanical parts that move they uh they fail there's a condenser or a capacitor in your magneto as well and the whole point of the capacitor is to make sure that the uh points when they open they don't arc it tries to keep the voltage across them the same so they don't they don't burn, but your capacitor wears out. Now your points are arcing Burning. and your points are to burn. Then they don't work. So now you need to service them. I mean, it's, it's the same reason why you don't see uh, an automotive repair shop on every corner in a neighborhood because cars don't have points anymore. They don't need to be adjusted. You don't need a mechanic to do that. So there's no shop. I mean, the magnetos that we have on our airplanes have a 500 hour. Um, I don't want to say it's mandatory, but a 500 hour inspection requirement, 500 hours. It's not that long. I mean, you think about it, if you're, if you're flying eight hours a day, which a lot of airplanes do, you know, that work out in, you know, on Ontario float planes and stuff like that, that's kind of a long season. So every season you've got to go through a set of magnetos. The reality is if you're commercial, yes, <laughs> it's hard to believe. And if you have a solid state electronic ignition doesn't have that. Nothing at all. No moving parts, nothing to wear. All of our uh, electronic ignitions, I shouldn't say all of them, but for the most part, all of them, are distributorless, so they use uh, a waste spark um, system. So one spark plug fires through the other spark plug. So there's no distributor, there's no coil, there's no points, there's nothing to wear out. 
it just works or it doesn't. If it fails, you know, the odd time they, they probably will fail, but uh, it'll be just some component that failed the transistor or, you know, maybe something got wet or you had an overvoltage system or an overvoltage uh, uh, event that happened because your, you know, your starter picked up the voltage regulator or something like that. You know, there's a lot of things that could happen, but for the most part, they're reliable. Same, same as, you know, the good point you made. When was the last time you just saw a broken down car with the hood up on the side of the road? You know, it doesn't happen. Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't happen, but very rare, right? Exactly. And and what was the last time you saw a broken down airplane on an airfield? They're there all the time. There's always, you talk to <laughs> half your friends and half their planes are broken. Like, <laughs> You know what? Actually, I, my 1987 uh, Grand Marquis, it, uh, it actually had an ignition failure and it was the, I can't remember what it was, a little module on it because it had a distributor and everything. There's a, there's a fire and probably the reason it failed is because on some of the old um, Fords, there was a, it was probably on the side of the distributor. It bolted yeah. on and used the aluminum of the distributor as a heat sink. Well, you're supposed yeah. to put this white grease in between the two. And if you don't put the white grease there, then the transistor overheats because it can't uh, throw the heat to the aluminum houses. Uh, or somebody hoses with water, you know, or something else. Who knows? What's uh, What hangar are you in, Matt? He's in the one with the internet him. connection. <laughs> yeah, with aluminum cladding. Yeah, uh, I think I think he's dropping out of there on us. Yeah, I think he's out. Anyways, well, what do you think? Should we wrap it up there? Yeah, I think uh, I think we talked about a lot today. It was uh, really really great talking to you, Tom. So, yeah, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, it's been a pretty uh, pretty uneventful weekend, so I was glad to to be here. Yeah, it's kind of different too. It's kind of nice to catch up. It's kind of like just calling your buddies. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got to, we got to go fly out to one of those. Uh, there was someone posted on the Alberta group there a few weeks ago or a few days ago about one of the, there's a new, uh, new cafe or one of the cat, I think in Berserker is open there now. And Tom actually there. So on the news, I saw there was a guy talking about the airport there and he called it, uh, the Psyker, it's Bicycer. That's how you pronounce it. Bicycer, nothing else. But uh, yeah, they got a cute little cafe there. Uh, Jen and I were there. What did you think of it, Jen? Well, she's Flying sleeping. Monkey, they had beer. Flying Monkey, they had beer. So she had a beer <laughs> and uh, we had an appy and it was just great to get out and uh, you know, be able to beer. order something. She had a beer, but uh, it's a great little place to stop in. It's, it's a little bit uh, northeast of Calgary. Um, you don't have to talk to anybody there, so don't worry about calling ATC fly in the uh, the runway's nice um cool little place to go but definitely go well maybe where, we should uh, all congregate there cool sometime. around here well what else is there out there that's fun to fly into around here well we've uh, got we've got wolf lake which none of you guys can get into ram falls red your forestry what else so some other kind of fun places to go if you're looking for just an interesting event so there's a, a little ultralight field on the south end of calgary called indus I mean, it's always fun to go in there. It's a fairly short runway, 2,000 feet, um, or 2,200, anyway, short, but it's grass. It's just nice to see the uh, the old guys with their ultralights. I mean, it's it's kind of fun. You'll have to go there and, and see what I mean by that. Um, Rocky Mountain House is a fun place to go. There's uh, Ken Fowler there. He's always working on something, and just kind of in the airport, lots of aviation going on there. Um, lots of aerobatics happening there. So if you do fly into Rocky, make sure you join from the west side. The, the east side of the field is the aerobatic box. So I'm flying there. Um, where else? I mean, I, I've flown to basically every airport in Alberta or just about probably at some point in time. Um, I like to go to places where there's lots of activity, high river, just South of Calgary, lots of activity there. There's a strong, you know, home builder base there with lots of RVs flying, you know, lots of GA, lots of people out flying, lots of people at the airport, you know, not just people hangar flying. Um, just get out and go somewhere, you know, find a place and say, I'm going to go to two airports today three airports and then, then head home, but make the flying monkey one stop there, have lunch and then, uh, and then head around. If you want cheap gas, old Ditsbury's got cheap gas always. And I think second or third Saturdays of the month, they, they drop it 25 cents or I don't know. I, I missed out on it last time, but I think the last right. price they had was a dollar 20 liter, which, uh, you know, we, we still think is, we think it's cheap, but in reality, it's still expensive compared to our, our neighbors south of the border. But uh, 
considering what we have been paying for it, it's it's not a bad price. I um I found that strip called Wolf Lake uh, on Google. It's this like far this uh, grass strip. So I think I might check that out one of these nights. The no Ram Falls is cool. I uh, I don't have anything I could go fly in there with right now, but uh, I'll uh, I'll see if I can borrow a, a pipe or something. Is it uh, is it too rough for your easy or for your uh, Lancer? Yeah, no chance. I wouldn't bring it in there. The problem is, I mean, the the runway. I haven't been there in a while, but it's it's not overly rough. But you know, you could go there, and the grass could be six eight inches high. Which you know doesn't seem you, seem, you think oh well, that's really high, but when you actually get on the ground and measure the grass, it's, yeah. it's normally that long. It's just the Lance Air is not made for for stuff like that. I don't have the prop clearance, and you know I wind up going there and wrecking it. Well, why? You know, like I'd rather yeah, drive. It'd be up. like taking a cassette in there. I, I'd rather take a cassette in there than than the Lancer. Cassette, at least you know with you had five hundreds on it. Like you've got five hundreds on yours, I think. Yep. Yeah, you'd be fine. Take the wheel pants off, you'd be fine. <laughs> that could be fun. I've never flown without wheel pants. Yeah, it's a little slower and there's a little bit of a pitch trim change, but yeah, you'd be fine going there. It's long. I mean, they used to fly DC threes out of there back in the day. For what? Not just forestry work and stuff. Um, I don't think the uh, the density altitude is usually a factor because it's you know it's. 5,000 feet or 4,800, I can't remember. Or maybe 4,000, I can't remember. It's not overly high, but typically it's not overly hot when you're in there too, so density altitude is not usually a problem. All right. I think we've got some work to do, Brian. Yep, i got to start hitting some of these places up. I think the Buccaneer would be no problem at all. I mean, that's no issue for that. Yeah, it's got those nice OLEOs well, that, and the nice prop clearance. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't have any issues with prop clearance, yeah. Isn't there a river right there too? There is. Can yeah. You land on the river? No, the river's too small. It's 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 a pretty tiny little river. I mean, it's a river. There's like a stream, a small, but it's yeah, it's it's a little stream. You you could All land right. on the river, I think, if the engine quit, but you wouldn't be <laughs> you wouldn't be using your airplane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not for a while, anyways. Yeah, it, it'd almost be better to land in the river with the wheels down. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, Tom. Cool, guys. Yeah. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks, Appreciate guys. It. See ya. Say bye, Jim. Bye. <laughs>